think of it as dark data locked in a vault with no door. We unlock it and we shine light on dark data by making it searchable. So what we're doing to get back to your question about Google and Apple and Amazon is solving with very single-minded vision a workflow problem. That's why there are so many smart startups, because startups solve specific problems. And then, you know, sometimes those big ones buy companies like this. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. This is a really interesting episode. Now, of course, I think you'd probably expect me to say that, and I'm sure I've said it before, probably often, but there are really several cool kind of storylines to my conversation with Jeff Kaufman on this episode of the SIDCast, and when I reflected upon the conversation, I just thought, there's some really good takeaways, as we say, in the business school world, but they're much broader than that. Let me say a brief word about a few of these. First, where do ideas come from? Here's a pretty fundamental question, right? Where do ideas come from? Well, users of the product or service is usually a common source. Somebody who's using something sees what works, sees what doesn't work, and comes up with ideas. But also people that are frustrated that there's no good solution to the problem they're dealing with. People who think they can just do it better than anyone else. These are what I call organic entrepreneurs. They have ideas that spring up in a natural way, simply from living their lives. They can come from any walk of life, and they don't usually come from traditional business backgrounds, but they're living their life, they discover a problem, something that's frustrating to them, and they just feel this compelling need to solve the problem. And I love finding people like this and talking to them because they usually have such an interesting backstory. They seldom had in their mind, for example, that they create a business, and sometimes they look back and they're kind of shocked that they did, but it's almost like they had no choice. And Jeff Kaufman is one of these people. Jeff is the CEO and founder of Trent. As an Emmy award-winning network television news foreign correspondent and war correspondent with ABC, CBS, and CBC News, he spent more than three decades reporting from around the world. Jeff has covered many of the biggest stories of our time, including the Iraq War, the Arab Spring, Hurricane Katrina, the Gulf oil spill, the Chile mine rescue. He's won an Edward R. Murrow Award, a DuPont Award, and two Emmys including one for his coverage of the fall of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya in 2011. So what drove him to creating a tech startup? Well, a very simple problem. The hours upon hours upon hours that he'd have to spend transcribing his recorded interviews so he can review the conversations, to kind of help craft the real story he was reporting on, to capture the right quotes, to compare what his different sources were saying, to cross-check, and to consider what else he might need to figure out before filing his story. Those interviews are the raw material, and you can just listen and listen, but to have that transcript, a hard copy in front of you, is completely different. He had to do it himself, and he had to do it wherever he happened to be, and it was time-consuming, and it was ponderous. Well, using artificial intelligence, among other tools, Jeff has created a company that does automated transcription better than anyone else. In our conversation, Jeff describes this eureka moment and how finding out that there could be a digital solution to this huge pain point in his work was life-changing for him, leading him to give up one career he was really, really good at to start another where he most definitely was out of his comfort zone. That's a pretty cool storyline, isn't it? The last thought really highlights one of the second cool things that this episode brings up. Why and how do people transition from one area of work to another, from one industry to another? 
And what do they bring along the way from the past that helps them in the present? How do we do it? How do we make these shifts? Why do we make these shifts? And if you listen to my podcast with Blair LaCourt, this was just around a month ago, November 15, 2020, episode number 76, you would have heard a master leader and executive take on this exact point. But Blair's been in business his entire professional life. And while it's not easy to go from, say, what he did, running a company that stages major shows, concerts, and sporting events around the world, to running a company that makes technology for autonomous vehicles, Blair's a real pro. I mean, that's his life's work. Jeff Kaufman is a pro, but in an entirely different world, journalism. Yet as we discuss in this uh, episode of the SIDCast, there really are some clear skills and mindsets that he's learned over the years in journalism that have eased his path to startup CEO. Yes, there's still a huge learning curve, but he doesn't come into this and didn't come into this unarmed. This transition, by the way, is really classic SIDCast material, as I like to say. I've always said that people craft a career. It's a work of art, a story that morphs, that adjusts, that pivots, sometimes at our own volition, sometimes driven by circumstances, but it's a living thing. And recently I had a, a former student of mine called to talk about her career and some of the challenges that are going on. And one of the things that I said to her, and she told me, you know, it's a bit of a Zen comment, and I suppose it is. I said, a career is not linear. And it's not. It's not linear. Maybe we think it is when we have a simplistic view. And maybe there are a few people out there where it is linear. You go from step one to step two to step three, and voila, you're done. But for most people, there's a lot of zigs and zags. And we are the architect of that story. And this episode and my conversation with Jeff Kaufman from Trent is a really good example of the zigs and zags. In his case, it was a pretty big zig and zag that happened that brought him from journalism to startup entrepreneur. Third point. There's really an interesting question at work in this episode that has implications for all entrepreneurs, especially but not only in tech. I mean, implications for the economic health of a country and a region and implications for would-be entrepreneurs who are wondering whether they can compete with the giants in their industry. Think about technology, you know, the big five, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft. They are so overwhelmingly powerful and omnipresent. Every entrepreneur out there has to think about whether any one of these giants will turn their sights on their startup and wipe them out because, you know, they can if they wanted to. I asked Jeff about this and you'll hear in our conversation kind of how he thinks and has thought about that. You know, I asked, are you worried about Google? Seems pretty easy if they wanted to, to do kind of what you're doing. And no matter how good you are, what you're doing, they can throw unlimited resources at any problem if they want it and they'd be pretty hard to beat. It's kind of an existential issue for startups, but I want to uh, read to you a short excerpt from a blog post that gets to this point that I just found so interesting. A blog post by one of the smartest people in the tech world that I know about. He's a venture capitalist and his name is Benedict Evans. I'll include in the show notes a link to his newsletter if you want to see what he's saying and doing and thinking every week. So this is what he says. When I read that venture capitalists don't invest in startups that compete with Google at search, or that there's a quote-unquote kill zone around Amazon. This is sometimes true, but it often feels like a category error. In 1950, you'd have been a fool to start a new car manufacturer, but McDonald's and Walmart are quote-unquote car companies, and by that he means companies that depend on cars for their success, and they didn't worry about GM at all. Facebook wasn't stopped by a Google kill zone. And today you'd be silly to compete with Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and L. Except that actually, that's what 4,000 startups are doing. He goes on to say, I lived in Silicon Valley from 2014 to 2019. I worked for Andreessen Horowitz, which is one of the top venture capitalists in Silicon Valley and in the world. 
and we were looking at startups and we saw three to 4,000 startups a year, credible companies that we thought were probably investable by someone. In other words, there is a ton of companies out there, a ton of startups that are close to the big five in technology. And it's not that they have nothing to fear, but they have a story to tell. They have a unique area to go into. And, you know, when you're as big as Google and Amazon, are you going to take on a project for which the total revenue possibility might be 10 million, 50 million, 100 million? I mean, that's pretty good for a startup, but it's nothing. It's barely rounding error for these giants. Much more likely is they'll see whether you could make it as an independent company and then they'll buy you at a huge premium. And that's a pretty good deal. So yeah, there's a lot here, right? There's a lot here in this episode of the Sidcast. And I'm really happy that I discovered Jeff Kaufman, a really engaging, accomplished and smart guy who has a great story that I know you'll enjoy listening to. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein and my guest today is Jeff Kaufman. Hi, Jeff. Hi from London, from rainy, rainy London. Well, it's rainy Hanover, New Hampshire here, so we have that in common. But you're Canadian, aren't you? I am actually Canadian. I haven't lived in Canada since 1997. I lived in New York when I was with CBS Evening News and then in Miami for 10 years when I was with ABC News covering the southern U.S. and Latin America. And I've been here in London for 10 years now. So, yeah. Which Um, is the best city you ever lived in? Oh, you know, Toronto's still my home and it's a great city. I loved living in New York. I don't really feel that, I mean, COVID and all that aside, I love living in New York. I don't really hunger to live there again. I mean, if you've ever lived in New York, you know that it's a thrill. If you're lucky enough to live there once, it's fantastic. But I don't know that I'd want to spend my lifetime there. It's an exhausting city. Uh, London is slightly more balanced. I mean, everything's out of balance right now with the pandemic. But London is, it's more green. It's more spread out. It's less congested. So even though it's a massive city, it doesn't overwhelm you everywhere you turn the way I found New York did. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I lived in New York for four years. I'm actually Canadian myself, which is why I'm asking all this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) From Montreal. I know this this is an audio podcast, but since you and I are actually seeing each other as we recorded, I did notice the Montreal Expos hat behind you. Ah, okay. I gave it away. Oh, my goodness. Who has a Montreal Expos hat anymore? But that's the team I grew up with and loved them back in the day. Yeah, I lived in London for one year only when I went to LSE. But I've been in New York, L.A., and then beautiful Hanover and Hampshire for 27 years now. So let's talk about this business, uh, Trent. What's the problem you set out to solve that got you started as a startup CEO in the first place? Well, let me just say, be very clear. I never planned to do this. Nobody is more surprised. And this is not disingenuous. I honestly did not have any interest in being an entrepreneur, an inventor, a tech guy, a business person. I loved being a journalist. I spent 30 years as a broadcast journalist, starting in Canada at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, but most of my career as a network correspondent for CBS and ABC in New York, Miami, London, and reporting from about 40 countries around the world for the networks. Stumbled into this. And and the simple question, I was at a tech conference here in London. I was building a journalism program for Indiana University's Media School, a global journalism program in London. And I was taken to a media innovation conference and asked some developers, having never honestly had a conversation with a developer before that I remember. And I said, why do I have to transcribe my own interviews in the 21st century the way we did in the 20th century when automated speech is almost useful? And that led to the question, well, what do you mean almost useful? And I said, well, it makes mistakes. And I'm a reporter and I can't deal with flawed data with incorrect transcripts. So 
you know, as much as it's tempting to look at Siri and say, isn't that cool? Well, it makes mistakes and I'm not going to go on air on Good Morning America and you're not going to print something that's got a mistake. So you have to be able to fix it. And that kind of led to a collaboration, which was the print editor, which sort of marries a text editor to an audio video player. And it was kind of like this light bulb moment. Oh my gosh, we've just invented the future. We've made the spoken word searchable, verifiable instantly. So is the difference more that you've been able to verify or have a higher quality of the transcription? Because you mentioned, you know, there's Siri and there's other things that have been around before that have done some translation in a sense. Transcription. Yeah. So I think that people sometimes confuse AI as the end product. AI is a means to an end. And so in this case, natural language processing or automated speech to text will take a conversation like ours and spew out a transcript that with my voice and yours should be 98, 99% accurate. But when we interrupt each other, mm-hmm. it goes off the rails and fails. If I mumble my words like that, yeah. it's not going to get it right. If I use an obscure term like my last name or your last name, probably going to get it wrong. You need to be able to verify it and correct it. So it's not the AI, it's the layer of software above, what I call applied AI, that actually has the value. And we're seeing this more and more. People think that, oh, AI is the future. It's a means to the future. It's not the end. And so it's how you bridge that final gap. Like What I say is that print leverages AI to do the heavy lifting of transcription and gives you the tool to close the gap. So we're recording this on Squadcast, but we could have done it on Zoom if I wanted to. And Zoom- Or on Trint. Well, that's something maybe we should talk about. I suspect you will talk about it. But on Zoom, it'll give me, when I get the recordings, an automatic transcription. And I've seen it, and it's not particularly great. But it exists, and so there's lots of transcription methods that are out there, even before you start. Is that correct? Sure. But the problem with what you described, that Zoom transcript, is that it is an imperfect transcript that's really difficult to read. There's no means to verify and search and find the errors. What we did was by taking the output of automated speech to text and gluing the source audio word for word. So if I say the horse jumped over the fence, I can search the word fence and you will hear the word fence like karaoke. And if for some reason it says something else, I don't know what word mess up there, I can quickly correct it. And so, you know, if I gave you the output of ASR for this conversation, and you search the word horse, you could find it, but then you wouldn't know if there was a mistake. You'd have to go back to the original recording. It's not workable. It's twisting yourself into a pretzel. You might as well just do it the old-fashioned way, which is listen to the whole darn thing, find the word horse, and transcribe that section. And if there's a mistake, you fix it. There won't be a mistake because you're doing it manually, and it'll take you two hours. With Trent, you search the word horse, you find it, you verify it, and if there's a mistake, you instantly correct it, you highlight it, you get your timing. You know that, you know, in my case for World News or Good Morning America, I needed sound bites to be anywhere from eight to 14 seconds. Oh, it's 12.3 seconds. Here it is. Here are the words. I know it's right. It took me literally 45 seconds, whereas that would have taken me 20 minutes or an hour, depending on the length of the interview. So that's the magic. So if we were using right now, Trent, it would be working in the background automatically. And the second we're done, I'd be able to look at that transcription. It could be doing that. Either you can do it right now, our live or what we call real time is only for our enterprise clients. For individuals, you would record this as an MP3 or a WAV file, or if you want video MP4, then you would just upload it and you'd get it back in a couple of minutes, either way. And you get it back in a couple of minutes. So the actual percentage savings, if something would take two hours, you can get it literally in a few minutes. The standard accepted ratio for transcribing an hour is three to four to one. So if you actually wanted this full hour transcribed manually, it would take you three to four hours 
to do that. Maybe if you're a professional stenographer, you could do it faster. But certainly for me, as someone who's done thousands of hours, I would say that's a fairly accurate representation. Now, when I was a reporter, I wouldn't do the whole hour. If I was doing a documentary for Nightline, the producer and I would split up the tapes and I would go for what I thought were the good moments and ignore the interruptions and all of that. I don't need a legal transcript of every word, but it still takes you a long time. With Trent, you can read through the transcripts, hear the moments. Uh, you know, he stumbles. Does he say it again? Oh, yeah, he says it again. I like that one better. Bang. And so you create a shorthand. But the Associated Press did a workflow study when they first signed up to deploy Trent across the entire organization. And they estimated that we were saving people you know, 50 to 75% of their workflow when it came to actually going through the transcripts. And it was represented a saving of an hour per day per employee who was using this. And you multiply that by a year and you start to see a huge amount of time being saved. And so it is cost effective. I mean, it's about saving time, but it's also about liberating you from the menial part of work. You know, to me, transcribing is a bit like waiting for an elevator. You just got to do it, you know, and you don't have any choice. Well, we found a way to, I guess, teleport you up to the top floor. Yeah. And what about Google? I know Google has supported some of your work. Does Google have any version of transcription already? It seems like they have everything. So Sure, they have transcription, but again, they don't have the word alignment. They don't have the ability to search it and verify it. And also we have this collaborative kind of like Google Docs, in fact, uh, Google Docs for the spoken word. We can take the transcript of this conversation and where you are and me sitting across the ocean, we can look at it and comment and correct and collaborate 10, 20 people on the same single source of truth. So Google doesn't have a product that aligns with us. In fact, Google is one of our biggest customers. They use us. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Many people think that between Google, Amazon, Apple, maybe uh, Microsoft, maybe Facebook, there's nothing in the world of technology that they can't do if they wanted to do it. I'm sure people well, have said that to you. What do you think? Yeah. So here's the thing. Here's where startups like Trent fit into the ecosystem of the big five. We're focused on solving a single workflow problem. Let me back up a minute. We live in an era that I call the voice economy. The 20th century was text-driven. Today, we live in a voice-driven economy where 80% of the content of the internet is video. Podcasts are proliferating like mushrooms you know, in a damp forest. I mean, you know, this is all about audio and video. We need tools to allow us to navigate audio and video. And Trent's single-minded mission is to enable storytellers to use audio and video, really the spoken word, in a way that is efficient. So you can use your skill set on creating content, not on doing menial tasks. And you can repurpose content. You can search stuff that you've already done a year or two ago and find, gee, I did an interview with that guy from Trent last year. Didn't he mention artificial intelligence? Oh, yeah. Because otherwise, if you've got to go through an hour, you're going to say, I can't be bothered. It's not worth it. So you've got value in these kind of recordings that you can't extract. It's, if you think of it as dark data locked in a vault with no door, we unlock it and we shine light on dark data by making it searchable. So what we're doing to get back to your question about Google and Apple and Amazon is solving with very single-minded vision a workflow problem. Of course, they can do it. Of course, they could, you know, they could say, here, take 50 million, you know, knock Trent out of the water. But they can't solve every problem in the world. I think it's a bit of kind of urban legend that if they're not doing it, it can't be done or it doesn't need to be done. That's why there are so many smart startups, because startups solve specific problems. And then, you know, sometimes those big ones buy companies like this. Yeah. Have you been asked that question before by investors and potential investors? Like what's going to happen when Facebook does this or Google does this? I mean, I used to worry about that. But here's the thing. When you have clients like the New York Times, what they want to know is that their data is secure. 
you know, they need to know that this is not being scraped like the Silicon Valley companies do. You know, we don't touch your data. We have a very, very clear data security policy, and they need to know that. We're the only company in our field that's certified by the International Standards Organization, what's called ISO 27001, a very memorable name, which is a data security management certification that is incredibly hard and rigid and requires constant audits on our protocols. And that means that we can have banks as customers, which we do, we can have big accounting firms, and we can have the major news organizations like CNN and the BBC and the Washington Post use us. And Google doesn't solve that problem. They're not interested. What for us is a big contract is pocket change for them. Right. And the reason I'm probing on this is because I've talked to many entrepreneurs who have whatever their business is, and they share a similar type of logic. But most people who are not in it, they don't believe it. They don't understand it. And that was the implication of my question. I didn't believe that, but many people do. They think Google and Amazon can do anything. And in theory, and I think you said so yourself, they could, but why would they is really the question. They can't do everything is the answer to that. They can do anything, but they can't do everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you need companies like Trent to focus on an opportunity in the market to leverage technology and to really understand the use cases where we can solve problems in the real world. Yeah. And you know, I don't look over my shoulder. You don't want to be arrogant about competition or potential competition. But the reality is that this is a whole new category of software and technology that we're inventing. And it's actually really fun, Sidney. I never knew that business could be fun. But when you're inventing and creating, I mean, it's hard. I like to say that the three things that I didn't know about business that I've learned as a journalist of 30 years, becoming an inventor, an entrepreneur, tech guy, are that it is more creative than I ever imagined. It is harder than I ever imagined, and it is more fun than I ever imagined. I understood. Is it the case that Nike is one of your customers that saw that somewhere? How would Nike use Trent? So everyone is in the storytelling business. You know, you go to any company, Wells Fargo, the bank, they have something called stories.wellsfargo.com. It's journalism. It's not, you'll feel good if you bank at Wells Fargo. They actually do financial forecasts. Nike tells stories. Red Bull, look at Red Bull. Everybody is in some form of journalism. It's brand journalism that Nike's doing, that Wells Fargo's doing, that Red Bull are doing. A lot of that is done by people, my former colleagues from ABC and CBS are doing a lot of that stuff. They, you know, people go on from being journalists and reporters and producers and editors to working for these companies, creating content to get the brands out in not in a kind of aggressive, obnoxious, you should buy Nike. It's more about telling stories around the Nike brand about athletes. And Nike, in its case, has a huge archive of ads, and they wanted to bring it to life, and they used Trent to do that. So taking vast archives and figuring out how to access content that would otherwise be just prohibitive to transcribe is one of the things that we can do. Yeah, the idea that every company should be, if they're not, in the business of storytelling is a really good insight. It's absolutely correct. Um, in fact, all of us are in the business of storytelling. That's called living. Uh, you just do it more professionally than most. Well, and your colleagues at the university are doing storytelling. You know, when you're doing social science research, as in political science, anthropology, mm -hmm. sociology, it's all about interviewing. It's qualitative research. Why did you vote Republican this time? Will you vote Republican next time? What do you think about the issue of the Supreme Court? That's what a political scientist or a social scientist is doing right now in the field across America. That has to be transcribed. They're telling a story in their research, not a story that would appear necessarily in a newspaper, but 
you know, an academic research study, which may lead to a book, which is still a story. It's all about storytelling in some form. And so the use case for what we're doing goes way beyond kind of traditional legacy journalism. So in this respect, you're uh, definitely preaching to the choir because my research is very qualitative and has been for some time. And I do interviews, hundreds of interviews. I end up hiring somebody to do that transcription. Let me tell you a funny story. When we first launched Trent in September of 2016 as a kind of what we call prosumer, professional consumer product for individuals, when $100, $500 came through, it was was a huge deal. It was so exciting. When we had, you know, when we hit $10,000 in our first revenue, I thought, wow, you know, this is working. And I could see every customer on Stripe, which is our payment system, you know, that you pay on a credit card. And I saw this bill come through for 60 hours, and I don't know, it was like $500 or something, I don't remember what it was, from somebody with a University of Florida.edu address. And my immediate reaction is, "Uh uh-oh, something's gone wrong. Somebody's going to be really mad at us because we've overcharged them. So I took the email and I said, hey, I'm Jeff, and this is a new product. I run Trent. Would love to know what you're doing. And I expected this angry email back saying, you guys just stole my money. I get this wonderful note from this professor, and she said, Oh my God, I read about you on a blog. The timing was perfect. I just did 60 hours of interviews and I was going to have to transcribe them myself. I put them through Trent. I got them back in minutes. I want to cry. Where do I send you roses? Oh my. And I thought, wow, okay, we're doing something right. And this was like the first, literally the first week of the company being you know, open and accessible to the public, uh, which is more than four years ago. Well, I won't send you roses, but I think I might want to use this product because this is, I think, podcast number, it'll be in the neighborhood of 75 or 80. And eventually I'm probably going to write a book based on the things I've learned from all these conversations with really interesting people. And transcription is going to be required (laughs) because I can't listen through these things hour after hour and then keep track of it. I definitely can't search it. Right. And you need to search it and you need to be able to cross-reference and you'll actually be able to build out files from different interviews. Uh, We're about to release a new product that will allow you to piece together your story or your research from different quotes from different places, which is kind of our next big innovation, which is in the process of being released for testing right now. I think that the innovation opportunities in this field are pretty limitless. People need to be able to turn around content efficiently and get it out to multiple platforms and integrate it into traditional products like Adobe Premiere Pro and Avid, the kind of the major video editing platforms or Adobe Audition, if you're just doing audio. There are lots of different products used. But one of the things that I've learned, there's an interesting tension in startups because the startups that succeed, there's an axiom, the F word for startups is focus. Don't be distracted. Like we don't do healthcare. Yeah, there probably is an opportunity for Trenton healthcare, but you can't do everything. So, you know, we focus on storytelling, on traditional legacy journalism, as well as brand journalism. And that's really where we're focused. That being said, well, focus matters. What people want from a product as it grows is more solutions from one product, not 10 products with 10 solutions. So we didn't do translation. People said to us, we don't want to have another product to translate mm-hmm. Trent's transcripts. We want it in-house. We got a 300,000 euro grant from Google's Digital News Innovation Fund in Europe, I guess over two years ago, and built a translation tool. So you can now translate this conversation into 51 languages on Trent, Korean, Arabic, Japanese, any language pretty much that you need. And that is part of the workflow. So otherwise, if you have to upload to Trent, then upload to a translation tool, then upload to something else for captioning, it's just too many tools. People want one continuous workflow as much as possible. And where that ends, it should have either export to publish 
or integration into the publishing tool like Adobe Premiere Pro or Avid, where you can do professional video editing. They don't want to go to six tools to do six things. That's one of the big lessons I've learned. The F word, as you say about focus, is a really good lesson because it's absolutely the case as long as you focus on something that works. And so many startups end up pivoting from one thing to another to find the thing that works. And you kind of hit it early on, it seems like. Well, so, yeah, with no business experience and no financial experience, I didn't know this. I mean, I'm just kind of a passionate, tenacious guy. And when I realized we'd done something, I literally said to the three developers I was working with at the time, and I was still at ABC News as a correspondent, as the London correspondent for ABC, I said, I think we've just invented the future. Either we get together and build this, or we go our separate ways, never see each other, and you're going to walk into a coffee shop in a couple of years, and someone's going to be on a platform that is a version of what we've just invented. And I don't think we should let that happen. And I left ABC November 30th, 2014, and started working on this December 1st, 2014. How did you do that, though, Jeff? 30 years in journalism, and then boom, you saw an opportunity, and you just left it. I mean, I don't know how I did it, except that I guess because I've lived the pain point of transcription for 30 years and transcribed thousands of hours of my own interviews, speeches, and news conferences, I saw this sort of liberation within reach. And I thought, if this would make me so happy, it's going to make a lot of other people happy too. And it turns out, Sid, that I fit into a classic entrepreneur's profile, uh, someone sort of mid-late stage in career who has lived the pain point that he or she is solving. I don't have any special qualifications to do a transcription tool, except that I've transcribed as much as probably anybody in journalism. I mean, give or take, I wouldn't say more or less. But the point being, I know the workflow that I would need to solve my problem. And I just knew that the world was ready for it. What I didn't know was when I was doing this in 2013, 2014, when I was planning this, was that it was just the moment that automated speech was good enough to leverage to do this. I think of it as sort of being a surfer on your surfboard in the ocean, and you kind of see a wave rising, and you don't know where it's going, but you think, hmm, okay, I can get a good ride out of this one. I just, by sheer luck, you know, was that surfer on the ocean, and I caught the first wave. You know, if you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point, he talks about how timing is often as important as vision. And so, you know, if you look at Bill Gates, if you look at Steve Jobs, they were brilliant, but they couldn't have done what they'd done three years earlier, three years later. It's all about that. And I think that's very much our story of Trent. Well, timing is essential to just about everything. Even you go back to Nike, you want to take an old time example. What made Nike into Nike? It was the fitness craze and they were there in the right place at the right time. And ironically, Reebok that came in after Nike uh, ended up becoming bigger than Nike in the mid-1980s because they became an aerobics company and that took off. And Nike wasn't. It's very interesting when it comes to timing. Many people forget that when they go look back at the success of a company. I want to go back to the point you made about other startups, because I think one of the many lessons that I've learned is that when you do what I've done, you meet people at sort of, you know, a party when we used to be able to go to parties before pandemics closed that down, but, you know, at dinner or something, and they say, oh, I have an idea for a startup. And I kind of, a little part of me kind of, I'll smile politely and go, "Uh uh-huh. And they don't have an idea for a startup. They have an idea that technology might be able to deliver, but a startup has to have an actual business model that's sustainable. And, you know, this is what you teach, isn't it? You know, if it's not a sustainable business, it's not a business. And, you know, unless you're doing a charity, and even then, if it's not for profit, it still has to be viable. And so what exactly is the revenue stream? I mean, these are the questions that I, particularly when younger entrepreneurs approach me, I kind of go, okay, so before we have this conversation, do you want me to give you a nice answer to what you're about to tell me? Or do you want me to tell you what I really think? Because a lot of the time, 
I will say, if I had money, I wouldn't invest. And here's why. Or before I invested, I would need to know. You don't want to say no to people, but I think you do need to ask tough questions and you need to say, okay, so why would people pay for this? How much would they pay? And would they pay again? Because if they're only going to pay $10 to use your product once and disappear, you don't have a viable business. And that's the thing that people don't understand about startups that succeed. It has to be scalable, repeatable on a pretty epic scale in order for it to be a viable business. Let's go back to that. It was a 2014, December 1st. You were ready because you had worked your whole life realizing this problem about transcription. And by the way, uh, when you describe yourself as kind of a certain class or category of entrepreneur, uh, it's actually kind of ironic because there's a whole school of thought that's been very big out of Stanford now everywhere. It's called design thinking. And what is design thinking? It's trying to understand what the potential users of your product or service are really breathing and living and experiencing it. And so your categories, you describe it is, well, you were the design, you were the user. And so you didn't have to go do the studies and the analysis that design thinking is all about. I think that's worth mentioning. Uh, Design thinking is a great idea. But one of the reasons why we see startups come from people that are in the field doing whatever it is they're doing, in your case, transcription being the challenge, is because you have that, those years of experience. You have been the designer of that and you understand that problem. My question really is, you know, so you saw the opportunity, but I'm just thinking there was something in your past and your background, your career that would give you the guts, the courage to do something that's crazy. I was a war correspondent, you know, in Iraq and I won an Emmy for my coverage of the fall of Gaddafi during the Arab Spring in 2011. Courage comes in different forms and I am not fearless. I'm terrified of gunshots and I've been around a lot. So I feel qualified to say that. Your question is what's in my background. So here are the interesting things. I would not have believed that journalism was good training to be an entrepreneur. But you know, when I was at ABC News, I covered Latin America. And one of the reasons I went to Latin America four times a year was because I came up with stories and literally sold them. I mean, this is the way it works. It's a marketplace at, at the networks. And so, you know, oh, I'm Good Morning America. I have this story for you that I can do in Bogota and Nightline. Here, you know, we could do a version for you down here, you know, and we're going to do a drug story for you on World News. And suddenly you've literally raised $50,000 internally from the shows and off you go for two weeks to Colombia and you produce six, eight, ten stories. And if you do them well, you get to pitch again and say, hey, and now I want to go to Argentina. And that's what I did for 10 years. So it's incredibly entrepreneurial. And I think that there are things about journalism that actually have been really good for me, really helped me. I know how to ask questions and find answers. I think one of the things sort of, I think anybody who's a journalist would say, you have to be really comfortable admitting what you don't know, because whether you work for ABC News or the Chicago Tribune, it doesn't matter. You never want to go public with information you're not absolutely confident with, because you'll be toast if you do. And so you have to be very humble about knowledge. And I think That's a really valuable thing when you're going into something as complicated as this, and there's so much you don't know. You have to know how to reach out and get answers. And also, it's pretty rough being a network correspondent. The journalism is challenging, but the politics of those places can be quite brutal. And I think it creates a kind of tenacity. I think of my almost two decades at ABC and CBS and you know another 10 years in Canada as a sort of one of those Popeye punching bags. You've got sand in the, at the bottom and people knock it over and it comes back. And it is a real roller coaster of highs and lows. And you become very resilient if you survive and you don't take it personally when things happen that you don't like. And you kind of need that here because a lot of people said no to me. A lot of people said, who are you to do this? And I just said, I mean, I literally used to say, Sid, to investors in the first year or two of the company, 
I am the most unqualified person in the room to do what I'm doing, but I had a good idea and I know what the solution needs to look like. And that's what sets me apart from others. And it's true. The flip side of it, the thing that journalism didn't prepare me for is I have no business degree. I have no financial background. And that was really hard. Just understanding how to read a balance sheet, how to read a forecast, how to structure a forecast. The first time I was going out for funding, I had to do a business plan. I didn't know what a business plan looked like. And a friend of mine who's been a CFO at startups very kindly spent a day with me at my dining table here in London in my kitchen, helping me craft the first version of a business plan. And he did it on Excel, on an Excel spreadsheet. And he said, here, so now you got it. You can play with the numbers. So he left and I started playing with the numbers. I'd never touched Excel. (laughs) And all I got, if you've ever worked on Excel and made a mistake, you get hashtag, 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 because the formulas aren't aligned. And I didn't know what I was doing wrong. The only thing I could do was hit close, do not save and go back and reopen it and Google try to figure out what I was doing wrong. And I just remember thinking, I just want to curl up in a fetal position under the dining table. I have no idea what I'm doing. So the financial side of it was really hard. But, you know, I think I was able to articulate a vision. I understood the solution. And what I brought was the vision, a huge amount of passion and authenticity. You know, I just, I don't lie to people. I hope I expose my own vulnerabilities. And I think that gives people real confidence. You know, investors have consistently said the fact that you're so honest about what you don't know makes me feel very comfortable. And I think that the swaggering entrepreneur who says, don't worry, I got it. You know, yeah, no, I know all that stuff. And you just kind of go, does he really? Does she really? Really? That doesn't make people feel very confident. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said to highlight for our listeners, which is that as a journalist, you are an entrepreneur and most people would not get that. You've explained it and it makes perfect sense, but it's a lesson I think more generally, which is that you can create things for yourself. I don't know about every job, every career, but probably way more than most people think you can. And that doesn't mean it's not necessarily a training ground to become you know, a startup CEO later. It's not about that. It's the fact that you can actually have more control over your own career and have more fun by pushing for and managing those creative opportunities. Oh, completely. Listen, I am totally shocked to be doing this. If you and I had met 10 years ago and you said to me, so 10 years ago, it was uh, 2010. I was just moving from Miami where I'd lived for ABC News as correspondent here to London. If you said, Jeff, in 2020, we're going to meet and you're going to be running a startup that's growing 100% revenue and tripling in size. We've gone from 50 to 75 people since March 1st, and the company's in the process of going to 150 people. As of today, we have 50 job openings. Wow. Um, yeah. Now um, I'm going to get all these emails. So Yeah, it, totally. Well, I mean, it's, it's no secret. Our lead investor in our most recent round was the New York Times. I'm not easily dazzled. I have to tell you, you know, having had a really exciting career and interviewed prime ministers and presidents and covered the Pope, I'm not starstruck. But I have to say that when the New York Times signed the investment round and the money arrived, I thought, wow, this is really, it's humbling and it's an honor. And wow, I feel this huge responsibility not to mess this up. It is like, holy cow. I know people actually believe in what we're doing and I'm running this company. How do I make sure I don't mess this up? It's so interesting you're saying that, Jeff. I've heard that from many entrepreneurs, and people often don't realize that. It's not just about running a business, not just about trying to become successful financially and otherwise. You have a personal responsibility that you feel deep, deep down to your investors. Well, not just the investors. I mean, the employees and the customers and the investors. I think that there are three groups that, you know, I feel responsibility to. The employees have, you know, staked their careers on this vision and our collective ability to deliver something that's going to work. It's a huge responsibility. I look at these people who I think believe in me 
And I think, hmm. And I would say, by the way, as an aside, my job keeps changing and I'm, you know, I have to try to keep up with it because when you run a startup of 10 or 20 people and you can all sit around and have a beer and, you know, it's really fun and it's got that kind of startup culture you see on TV, it's one thing. But when it starts to hit 50 and now 75 and soon 125, 150, my job is really different. How I communicate is different. The weight of my title. I mean, I'm not a guy who swaggers. I don't play the CEO card. I never have yelled at anybody in my six years of doing this. I don't believe in it. I don't think that's what gets the best out of people. But I have to educate myself on how to evolve as a leader. And that's something that people probably don't expect. But if I'm going to be useful for the company and make it grow, I have to learn these skills. And that's not easy. And I would say lockdown has made it even harder because communication is just so much more layered for all of us. Are you thinking particularly about communication with people, with these other constituencies, or is there some other dimension you're thinking of that describes or encapsulates how you've had to learn what you're learning now, really? So I think that my job now as a company of 75, amongst my primary jobs is to build out a leadership team that can deliver and then define what the outcomes we're aligned on and let them do it. And I think that that was not my job when we were 20. My job was to have my hand in every pot and to be involved in every decision. I can't do that and I shouldn't do that now. As of July, we have a new chief technical officer, CTO, and a new VP of product. And part of the reason they were brought in is because they have scaled up startups before Mm -hmm. from the size we were to the size we want to be. And so it's kind of been there, done that, seen these problems, seen these growth challenges. I've built middle management layers, you know, reporting lines, communication lines, and the kind of organizational structure. I'm not a process guy, Sid. I mean, when you're a reporter on a deadline, you just do it. And when you've done it for 30 years, process is so ingrained in you that you don't think, well, let's do a little flow chart about how we're going to tell tonight's story. I mean, you just don't have time. You know, you've got six, eight hours to turn around a story that's going to lead ABC World News. And you're working with a producer and a camera operator who you've probably worked with before and an editing producer in New York or London. And, you know, you've all worked together and there's just kind of a protocol. You know, you don't stand back and think it's so ingrained. When you've got 75 employees, that doesn't work. You've got to have process. You've got to have clarity. You know, we now do what, I don't know if you've talked about in this podcast, OKRs, but objectives and key results. It's a Google system for aligning members of the company where you have a corporate-wide OKR, series of OKRs, and then each department has them, and you can even have sub-level OKRs. And the idea is that we all understand what the goal is. We're all kind of, as they say, rowing in the same direction. It helps people understand what we're doing. And importantly, because there's so many possibilities, it helps people understand what we're not doing. That kind of clarity of messaging, it's not that easy. I mean, the OKR system is, I think, really valuable, but I would say we haven't mastered it yet. We're getting better. But whether you use that or some other process, it doesn't matter. But people want to know what success looks like, what the objective, you know, where are we going to be at the end of the year? What's the objective in 2021? If you don't communicate that to the team, how are they going to know where they should put their energy? And so all of that has to be learned. All of that process has to be put in place. You know, things like we've done for a year, quarterly surveys, anonymous surveys of the team. You know, a year ago, we were scaling. And one of the things they said was that the company's benefits weren't good enough. We now have really good benefits here in our North American headquarters in Toronto, where we run our sales teams from, now have really good competitive benefits. We just did a survey and we went from 25% approval of our benefit offerings to 85%. So, you know, you learn to do this stuff. I have never done any of this stuff. 
Do you know that in 30 years of journalism, I never had a 360, i.e. I never had you know, a review of my performance. I was on employment performance contracts, on three-year performance contracts. And my 360 was, we're going to renew you or we're not going to renew you. And, you know, that was it. You know, it, was, it wasn't like, we don't like the way you communicate. It's like, yeah, you can come back. Here's the deal. So what I'm getting from your journalism experience, very interesting. What's paid off and been meaningful is this kind of entrepreneurial nature of the work that you were doing. And of course, understanding at a very deep level, the challenge of transcription. What you experience as a journalist that doesn't apply at all is just about everything else. How the business well, yeah. is run, right? It's a batch business. Every night there's a show, there's something that happens, and then you do it all over again for the next night or the next week or whatever. That's true. But there's one other quality of journalism that I think is really valuable, and that is tenacity. I remember covering the fall of Gaddafi in August of 2011. The day that Tripoli was falling, we were on our way into Tripoli and everything that could go wrong did. And it was, if you'd seen it in a film script, you would have said, this can't all happen in the same day. One of our drivers got scared and fled. We got a flat tire. We were driving through the desert and we hit a rock and the radiator of one of the vehicles broke. And it was just one calamity after another. New York doesn't want to know that. You're leading tonight's newscast. Don't mess it up. Mm -hmm. And so you have to find a way to get the story on air. So it's going to run at mm -hmm. 631 New York time. And you can't say, oh, well, we couldn't do it. And you can't say I'm going to be five minutes late. You just do it and you find a way. And so you become incredibly resourceful. You understand what is achievable and what's not, and you do it. And so that kind of drive and tenacity is actually really helpful for, I mean, it's essential if you're going to be an entrepreneur, because there are just a thousand reasons why you should fail. And you just can't, you have to find ways to navigate around them. Before I went to Iraq, and again, Libya, I took war correspondent training. And one of the things that they teach you, which is terrifying, is how to get out of a field of landmines if you actually find yourself in the middle of one. You get on your knees and you poke on a 45-degree angle and you know, one quarter inch at a time forward to try to go under the landmines. And they actually make you do this and they bury fake landmines. And it is completely terrifying. When you experience that, thankfully, I never encountered landmines in my work in real life. I encountered lots of other horror. But, you know, the metaphorical landmines of this journey are in their own way terrifying. But I, I think that because I have seen so much horror and because I've seen so much pain and suffering, I constantly remind myself that my worst day at Trent is better than a lot of people's best day. So don't wallow in self-pity, just keep going. Right. And that's a form of humility, isn't it? To recognize yeah. that no matter what's going on for most of us, we are so privileged in so many ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, you never forget some of the horror, that kind of suffering. And I don't think about it. I don't have nightmares about it. But when I talk about it, it comes back. And, yeah. and it, you know, it is, it's oppressive to think about, you know, how hard life is for so many people. Why did you want to be a war correspondent? I didn't. I was a journalist and a war happened in Iraq. And they said, mm -hmm. you know, we need you to go. And, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, I take my journalism really seriously. I mean, I really care about serious stories. I think that democracy needs an informed citizenry. And that's where journalists play in. I mean, I think it's a total mess right now in journalism, particularly in the US and uh, really in the Western world with what social media has done and, you know, the kind of crap that masquerades as journalism now. But I really do think that it is really important these stories get told. And so when they said, go, what are you going to do? Say, no, I'd rather cover the Kardashians. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's just like my idea of a nightmare. 
I hate celebrity journalism. I mean, other people can do it. I don't condemn others for doing it. I just don't want to do it. And so, you know, and then I think it's one of those things that when you deliver, then you get asked to go back again. And it's a personal journey. You know, you have to learn how to bottle your fear. And I won't pretend. I, I remember it being in Baghdad in our bureau. And I, it was the night before I, we went into Baghdad that I often would be really paralyzed with fear. And you don't want to tell your family because they'll get frightened. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to tell your colleagues because, the, you know, it, it'll unnerve them. And so you kind of have to just deal with it. And then the way I sort of think, visualize it is that when I got to Baghdad, I put my fear in a box, locked it and put it under my bed and just got on with it because I'm here, deal with it. Don't focus on it. And I managed and I learned how to cope with that. I think anybody who's not at times afraid is either a liar or a fool because you get into situations where I can't imagine you wouldn't be afraid in some sense. I mean, it doesn't. So I'll tell you one story actually about fear. In 2004, I was covering a very violent revolution in Haiti that's now long forgotten when Jean-Bertrand Aristide was overthrown in a coup d'etat. And we actually had an interview with President Aristide the Sunday morning that he was actually spirited out of the country against his will. We went down to the presidential palace, one of the only really fancy buildings in all of Haiti, and it was locked with chains on the fence. It's this French colonial building, since destroyed, by the way, in the Haiti earthquake. And I speak French, and I said to the guards, no, no, we have an interview with the president. And they said, go away. He's not here. And I said, no, 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 President Aristide's expecting us. And there was something very weird about the way they were behaving. We didn't know he was gone at that point. And so we went to the back of the palace to the service entrance, and they put guns in our faces through the window of the SUV and said, get out of here. And we still didn't know there'd been a coup d'etat at that point. But we thought, okay, let's get back to the hotel in Pechenville, which is the area where we were staying up in the hills on the edge of Port-au-Prince. And as we were trying to leave, there were these concrete barriers, and we couldn't really navigate them because you had sort of a chicane to stop the guerrillas from entering the palace grounds. And suddenly there was gunfire, and it was the only way out. And it was not my finest moment, Sid. I, I kind of panicked, is the truth. And I, I don't know what I said, but it was like, we got to get out of here. But it was probably much more alarmist than that. And we had private security. We traveled in these places with private security and paramedics. And the security guy in the front turned to me. He's an ex-SAS soldier. And he said, shut the F up. You're not helping. And I realized that I could not ever do that again because I was undermining our ability to focus on the problem. And I was also undermining my own credibility. And in leadership, what I've learned and what I apply to that in leading Trent is that you can't panic. You lose focus and it unnerves others. And so when things get really bad, you've got to stay grounded. And so, you know, that little story, I, it really did have a lasting impact on me because I don't think I ever panicked again in a war zone because I realized that even if I had the inclination, that's not the way to get out of it. We got in some pretty sticky situations. I mean, I remember leaving Libya once and people tried to rob us and they put knives at our throats and, or, or, you know, or threatened to. They had knives in their hands. And I really didn't know. I, I remember calling New York and saying, we have a really bad problem we're in. And if, you know, if we don't call back in five, 10 minutes, things have gotten worse and we don't know how we're going to get out of this. I just sort of discreetly went away and got on my satellite phone and called, you know, you just learned that staying calm is really, really critical in crisis situations. And when you're leading people, you got to stay calm because you can't think rationally. Yeah. I mean, these lessons from your own work experience are very unusual for most startup CEOs, which makes the startup CEO world as complicated and challenging as it is. It does put into perspective. It's not exactly life and death in the same manner that it was previously. I know we're almost out of time. So let me ask you one last question about advice. 
Uh, and it's not advice necessarily for our listeners or for me. It's advice to yourself. If you can magically transport yourself back in time to the 21-year-old, let's say, Jeff Kaufman, and you see him doing whatever he's doing, and you lean over to him and say, you know, Jeff, 21-year-old Jeff, there's one thing you need to know. If there's one thing you want to do or not do. If there's one thing you want to pay attention to in life, this is it. What would it be? What would be that advice? To you? Listen, I was, you know, I think like a lot of 21-year-olds, I was ambitious and impatient. I mean, I think that's part of being 21. And I see this when I, you know, when I talk to kids in their early 20s, I think, you know, that feeling that life's over at 30 and what they don't realize because, you know, we're well past that age is that actually life, you know, that sort of silly greeting card thing about life begins at 30 is kind of true in a way. In your 20s, you're just kind of trying to figure out where you're going to build the foundation of your life. And it's in the 30s that you start building. It kind of applies to Trent. Yeah, of course, like any entrepreneur, I would love a big payout. I, I would love to be able to buy a some fancy summer cottage north of Toronto where I'm from or, you know, do something wonderful. But I don't actually wake up in the morning saying Trent is going to make me rich, even though the company's valued a lot of money now. Because first of all, it's not real money until somebody buys it or, you know. So I think that my kind of aphorism would be that it's about the journey, not the destination. Don't rush. If you're having fun, if you're enjoying it, particularly in your early 20s when you're so impatient to move on, don't rush to something just because you feel you should move you know, savor the moments. And, you know, I see this with some of our employees who get impatient for new things. And it's, there's no social contract that says that you have a right to work in a place that treats you well, that you have a right to work in a place where people like each other. You know, that is a wonderful thing to find, but it's not a given in life. And we've all, I presume we've all worked in places where that's not true. Mm -hmm. Savor the good things. Don't, don't rush to the next one if you're enjoying something now, because the next one may look good from afar, but it's probably got its own problems. You know, I've seen this with a number of employees who've left, and some of them left for good reasons. I mean, particularly when you're small, we didn't have room for promotion. But, you know, sometimes, you know, a good number of them have come back and said, oh, my God, I miss my job. The place I went is a rat's nest of nastiness or incompetence. And, you know, at least at Trent, you know, where you stand. And so uh, I think that that's where I kind of smile and look at the younger me. But, you know, that's part of being in your 20s. And I don't think we need to apologize for being. Isn't there a line that says you never know more in life than you do when you're 21? Mm, that's right. And <laughs> what you actually discover when you get to be, let's just say, a little older than that is hopefully you get to be a little wiser. You know, people used to say that and I used to scratch my, oh, yeah, sure. But, you know, of course, now that I'm in that other category, I'm going to say it. What I understand about life today is light years beyond what it was way back when. And I also know that there's so much more I don't know that I didn't really understand earlier on. And that's wisdom in and of itself to me, knowing what you understand. Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. Okay, I'm going to just say this out loud, Said I'm 61. You know, well, we're I, just about I, the same age, so there you have so it. So, you know, I think that the 25-year-old me obnoxiously would have said, no, he's an old guy. I don't feel it. You know, I cycled 100 miles on Sunday, so I don't feel old at all. But, you know, I think that what's really fun about what I've done with Trent is that I love being a journalist, had no idea what I would do if I ever left journalism, you know, literally left journalism one day and went into tech 12 hours later and haven't looked back six years later. And, you know, people say, do you miss being a reporter? I don't have time. This is way too challenging, way too interesting and way too much fun. Jeff Kaufman, thanks so much for being on the Sidcast. It's been really fun to talk to you, get to know you a little bit, and share your story with our uh, listeners. And I'm hoping to start using Trent very soon, certainly when I go through all these podcasts. You're welcome. I can't wait to get your feedback. And tell us what you wanted to do that it doesn't do, because we love it when users help us shape the future. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Sid. Take care. Bye, Jeff. 
Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.